All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, let's start by doing a bit of a recap to, of course, some practical matters. Tomorrow, uh, Bill, Bill uh, will be entertaining you. So, you need to know about the exercises during part two of the course. So, stay tuned. It's the same back channel and same back place location. Okay, and uh, uh, this, today we're going to talk about something called software engineering practice. We're going to briefly go into what that is, uh, and then go through some practices for software engineering. Starting next week, we will be talking about the basic activities of software engineering. But let's do it, start doing the recap by uh, thinking about what are the basic activities we do in software engineering. What are the basic activities that we need to do to develop software? Yes. Well, planning is... Planning or is often called design. Planning or design, yes. That's important. What are the other basic activities that we need to do to develop software? Yes. Estimates. That, that's part of, of project planning, for example, yes. What else? Coding, yes, implementation. It's often called implementation, coding, or construction. Pressman calls it construction when he talks about software engineering practice. So, yes, absolutely, we need to do the coding as well. What else? Yes? Testing. We need to do some form of quality assurance. It can be execution-based testing, meaning we run the program or run a series of tests to see whether they fail or pass to get a, uh, uh, an assessment of the software quality. And then we can also do non-execution-based testing, like reading the code, doing code walkthroughs and reviews. What else do we need to do? Yeah. Thank you. That was what I expected, the first one somebody mentioned. Require requirements gathering, that is finding out what we're supposed to do in the first place. So doing the requirements, then we would do project planning, and we would do the software design, we would do software construction, then we would do testing. What else? Now we have built the software. Then we have something called deployment. So we would also need to make sure that it can be installed and run on our clients or customers' computer systems. So these are the basic activities that we need to deal with in software engineering. And Previously, we have talked about the software process, which has been, in particular, the life cycle models, have provided us various ways of organizing these basic activities. The waterfall model says you first do requirements, then you do design, or somehow, sometimes we insert something called specification in between, which is the refinement of the requirements. So we do, do design, typically at two levels, and you do implementation, testing, and deployment. Whereas the agile models, more and the incremental models mix them in a different way in the project life cycle. So we have started from the software process as a ways of organizing these basic activities. What we're going to do today is to talk about what the, what the level below the software process, but at the level above the various methods that we have for actually developing software. So when we look at each or any of the software engineering activities that we need to do, requirements, design, coding, testing, and so on. Within each of those uh, activities, 
uh, in our field there is a set of methods, methods and tools that we can use to do that. So we can find methods for doing requirements uh, engineering, finding the requirements, analyzing them, and documenting them, and so on. Various methods for that. And we can find various methods and, and, and languages and so on for doing design. The one you are probably most familiar with would be UML, which is one language we can use to design, help us design the software. And there are, of course, as you know, a vast number of tools we can use for doing the actual coding. Lots of different languages we can choose from different development environments and so on. And as well in testing, there are various methods that we use to design and run test cases. So what we're going to talk about today is the level between these particular methods and the software process, which is more, this lecture is more on, let's say, the right mindset that you need to have as software engineers than on very practical matters. But they are important from the point of view of performing each and every method that you will uh, decide to use in your project. Then next week we will start from, we're going to talk about ways of doing requirements, ways of doing design, ways of implementation, and ways of testing. So that will be the theme next week. Uh, and this week we will talk about what Pressman refers to as software engineering practice. Uh, he defines it this way. It's a broad array of concepts, principles, methods, and tools. I like to think of practice here the way he talks about it as a way of thinking but that helps you implement the methods and ideas that you find uh, in the overall software processes. I have to give you a warning. Uh, the first time I read through the chapter on software engineering practices in our textbook, I thought, well, this is stupid. How on earth can I give a lecture on this? Perhaps I should skip this chapter. But then it started growing on me. There's something that makes very much sense here, and that is uh, the fact that mo all these practices that he lists here are very important. They are practiced in real-world software projects. So they are very important to keep in mind. You should think of them as ha having the right mindset to doing software development. Uh, so those things will seem, holy shit, oh, I know that. Of course, this is what we all should do. Uh, it's uh, very typical that we can find software projects in which many of these good practices have been uh, forgotten. So, one way of viewing yourself as software engineers is very simple. You have one, you are given one task. Understand what to build, build that to the specified quality level, budget, scope, schedule you have. This is a very good way of viewing yourself as software engineers. In our field, there is no one single way that is the correct way to do this. It depends on the problem you have, the kind of software you're supposed to build, how much you know about the requirements, what are the different quality levels. So the most important thing for you to do is to have the mindset of a problem solver. The problem needs to understand what to do and build it to the right point. And then you should feel free, depending on your situation, to use whatever tools, processes, and means help you best do that. Then you're a responsible software engineer. So the basics of the mindset of a software engineer should be to understand the problem, use whatever tools, environments, processes there exist that he knows of or can find out that best help 
solve that problem. And therefore, the essence of solving for example, in mathematical problem solving. George Pauli, in a very old book called How to Solve It, said the essence of mathematical problem solving is very simple, and it's, it's strange how often people forget these simple steps when they try to uh, solve difficult mathematical problems. The first thing you need to do is to understand the problem. That means we need to do understand the requirements, the needs, the thing we are trying to solve. What is the need, what are the requirements, what is the problem for the customer, for the clients that we are trying to solve by implementing this software system? Uh, as we discussed uh, when we talked about the software process, the various life cycle models, uh, in many cases we cannot understand the, so the, the problem uh, at the outset of a project. Then the waterfall model would always work. We would be able, by analyzing, to have a perfect understanding of the software we are supposed to build. Since we can't do that, we need to have at least some level of understanding of the problem before we go further in the project. So we would need to have a high-level understanding. But to understand the problem, we communicate and the software. Then he says it's a good idea before you start writing paper after paper of calculations when you solve a mathematical problem to devise a plan. How am I going to solve this problem? In software development, we do exactly the same. We do a design. Typically, we plan the solution in software engineering by two separate planning activities. We do what's called architectural design, which is a high-level design of what the different parts of the software system are and how they interact. And there are various architectural or architectural architectures, layered architectures, byte-based architectures, and so on. We are going to talk more about them later. Uh, and also, there's a lot more of them on the software architecture. But they would do high-level architectural design, then we would go into each subsystem or module of the system and do a detailed design of the algorithms, the classes, data structures, and so on. That would be planning the solution. Finally, we would carry out the plan. We would do the actual construction activities, build the software system. And then finally, we would examine the results for accuracy. Does it work? Does it solve the correct problem? So, uh, in software engineering, we often talk about verification and verification. Verification, that means testing that we have solved the problem as we have understood it correctly. It essentially means that we don't have bugs in the software. Do, does our software work according to the requirements? But then we have validation, which means have we implemented the correct requirements? So we have verification and validation. Uh, we talk about testing and quality assurance activities in software engineering. But at its core, software engineering and all problems on this is more or less common sense, the use of common sense. But it's strange also if you really look at what happens often in, in software development projects that run into problems. Uh, we often skip the first two stages here. We, we jump to step number three, carry out the plan, write the code. We don't understand exactly what we are building. We have no overall design for how to build it, but we just start coding and we think it will, it, it will come to me as I code. So this general mindset of 
problem solving. This is what you should use. And for the various stages, uh, there are various methodologies that you can use. Does this make any sense to you? How, do you see any problems from the point of view of agile software development and this more traditional view of problem solving? Well, uh, I find out that you write coding. If you do a quick prototype, I think it sometimes helps you to understand the problem, but you must be Agreed. to throw out the code. Agreed. Uh, you remember the prototyping model, perhaps. <laughs> prototyping can be a way of actually solving uh, the first step of understanding the problem. You might do prototypes uh, to help you understand the problem for several reasons. You might want to understand the technical issue or an architectural uh, related issue, if it's a good architecture, you might want to try to understand the problem better. Or very typically, you would do a prototype of the graphical user interface to be able to get quick feedback from your customers. So you are absolutely right in that. You can use coding as a way of understanding the problem. But there's a difference uh, in your mindset for writing the code if you are prototyping to understand the requirements versus building that your system. So that's a very good clarification. Uh, any other points? Yes? You want to know what the problem is if the client might start adding the requirements or whatever. Sorry? You might not know what the problem is if the client starts adding new requirements. Uh, that is very typical. That's what I said. It's very typical that the client even doesn't know the problem. So in many cases, and that is why we have, if we look at this strictly, this looks like the waterfall model, doesn't it? And very often, we cannot understand the problem completely in software engineering until we actually have devised some kind of plan and starting solving the problem, because it opens up new uh, things when we start working. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to understand the problem, or that we shouldn't uh, try to have a plan for what we're doing. But it's a fact of life that the client typically will change his mind, or we will find technical issues that we just weren't able to think of when we started at the beginning. It's a, it's a question of debate that uh, if we put much more into actually trying to understand the problem, much more effort, would we be able to actually find things that otherwise tend to turn up later? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. But there are no good studies showing how much of the changes that we get are changes that we might have been able to anticipate, and how many changes are completely unexpected. Most technical problems shouldn't be unexpected. You should be able to find them by doing a thorough planning uh, uh, in the early stages. Uh, but then, it's, then, again, there's a cost of doing the planning. The more detailed planning we do, the closer we are to coding, and then we uh, run into the cost-benefit problem of doing too much planning versus actually doing the implementation. Any other comments? Okay. So here are what Dresden calls the core software engineering principles. This, should, this is what he thinks should be in your mind at all times when you are in a software development project. Uh, first of all, as software engineers, uh, you develop software to provide value. Now, this is a very difficult thing often to remember, uh, because uh, when you provide value to the customer and the user, you should implement things that they are interested in and value. You should know that based upon your analysis of the problem. 
But there is a tension here between providing value also for yourself, a problem that is very visible in agile models that focus on a single project. And the problem is uh, if you focus only on providing direct short-term value to your customers and users, you typically end up sacrificing things like maintainability, scalability, and uh, other issues that are related to internal quality of the software. Then you don't care about whether the code is readable, understandable, well-structured, and so on. Uh, and this might be okay because the clients typically, most clients in particular if they are not software development experts, couldn't care less about whether your code looks good, is well-commented, has a good structure, whatever, as long as it gives them the functionality they need in a way that they deem usable enough. But if you end up maintaining that software, they probably aren't uh, willing to pay you later a lot of money for you to structure your software in a way that it's even possible to add new features that they later like. So you always need to remember uh, that there are a set of quality concerns. We are going to talk about this more later, that you need to balance. What is the right balance between putting more effort into internal code quality, doing something that is maintainable and so on, versus very quickly doing the simplest thing possible, as quickly as possible to just get the features out. There's no right solution to this. You can put too much on both sides. You need to think about that when you uh, develop software. A related principle is to keep it simple. Principle. Uh, there have been studies many, many years ago about reasons for software projects being late and costing much more. One of the reasons has been that they, they found was that coders like to implement things just a little bit better than is needed. That's a bit more general level. And when I'm doing this class, well, I could do it this many. It's probably more usable later. And I don't know. They do like to do things a bit too fancy. In most cases, that's not worth doing. So it's a good idea to always try to use the simplest solution that will work, not the best or optimal one, unless it's called for, because there's a lot of more work in doing the optimum uh, principle. So focus your optimization efforts uh, on the places where it really matters. Another very important thing is to maintain the project vision. What happens also is that people easily get carried away. They get new ideas when they develop a piece of software. And it has happened in many cases that the project loses focus on what it's actually doing. So it's important to always have in mind the product and project vision. And this relates to my first point. What you produce, others will consume. It means you should write everything you do, your code, documents, whatever you work on, with the mindset that somebody else needs to understand it. So even if you are the world's best coder who can do the most cryptic thing uh, that you have a hard time understanding yourself the next morning, that's not a good idea. You should always write everything you do in a software development project or when you develop software in a way that other people can understand and use that later. Just a very basic principle, but it means write code that is easy to read, do enough commenting and so on. Uh, don't expect people to understand things that are critical. Very difficult point, but very, very important. Be open to the future means you know that the client will change its mind, you will have to add features, and so on. So if you can think of solutions that make it possible to change things 
uh, easily later use that related time ahead for reuse again. Uh, if you can do easily something that makes it more reusable in later projects, uh, that's a good idea. And the only important point is the last one. Uh, as good software engineers, you are problem solvers. Problem solvers, solvers keep their brains on. So uh, when you use methods, tools, you solve problems, don't read our methods like fundamentalists read religious literature. There are no absolute truths in any of the books we have in our field. Very, very little of the methods must be followed to the letter to work at all. You must use your own judgments, your own brains to find out how to uh, implement the various methods. There are very few cases in which you cannot tailor and, and develop these methods that you find to suit your situation better. So always use your own sound judgment. Don't do things that are stupid. And the only way you can do that is by keeping your brains active. What do you think about this set of principles? This is what this is. Regardless of what process you use, regardless of which organization you are in, if you don't keep these principles in mind, uh, it's not going well. Do you think it makes any sense? Okay. Then let's move on to the next thing we have here are general practices, general principles for the basic software engineering activities, for planning, for modeling, for construction, for deployment, and finally we also have a set for communication. Uh, there have been some studies of coders, software developers in companies. How much of their time do you think a typical coder, uh, according to this study, spends coding by himself? Just sitting in front of his computer coding. How many percent of his working time? You can think about yourself. Let's see then the ones of you who work as coders. How many of your time do you, percent of your time when you are at work do you spend coding by yourself? And how much of your time is spent doing other things, communicating with other people, and so on? Anyone want to throw a number out in here? Yes. Like 30-40% That's a very good answer because the, according to the study that was made about 10 years ago, it's about 30% of your time. So a typical software developer spends about 30% of his time, uh, working time, coding by himself. The rest of the time is spent mostly communicating with other people, in design meetings, uh, talking to customers, and so on. So uh, the typical view of nerds that don't communicate. Doesn't fit the software engineering, what they do in real life. Software engineering, developing software, well, you don't do it by yourself. And you do it at work in a company. is 70% communicating with other people, 30% working by yourself. So communication is extremely important in software engineering. You need, typically, of course, the communication is technically related. It's related to doing the implementation and so on. But it's not a way of of, of, uh, of sitting by yourself most of the time when you work uh, in software engineering. Okay. So here we have things that we're going to talk more about when we talk about requirements engineering. But when we plan, it's very important 
And this goes, of course, for all projects, but in particular, software projects are notorious for having problems understanding the scope, what we should implement, what shouldn't be included in the project. So it's very important at the outset of a software project when we do requirements engineering to both start, though it's very difficult, as we mentioned and discussed before, and the client changes his mind often, it's important that we start taking lists or, or finding two parts of the world. First of all, what is the core? What is the things that we actually should do in the project? And then one way of getting at the border is also what is very clear that this project shouldn't be done. And then we can, can start narrowing down uh, the project scope. It's very important when we plan to involve both the customer and other stakeholders. In large projects, for example, the customer typically uh, has many representatives. The customer, the one who's actually paying the bills, uh, is typically not at all the user of the software. So we have some IT manager uh, in a big corporation who buy, that buys the software, but that manager has no idea about the actual use of the software. And this can lead to very interesting situations when uh, decisions, acquisition software development, software acquisitions are made by people who, is, who are never going to use the software. But, so it's very important to involve all the different stakeholders. Uh, it's all also good to recognize that planning is iterative. We are, it's typically useless to do a very, very detailed plan for a long project at the outset of the project because we know that we cannot plan in detail. So we typically do something that is called rolling weight planning. It basically means that uh, we plan the whole project at a high level of abstraction, and then we plan the near future as further as we go, go along as, with a, as a rolling wave in which we get more detail of our plan. Ah, we need to estimate based upon what we know. It's very difficult to estimate based upon what we don't know. We should think about risk. We should be realistic. One very typical problem in software engineering is that we do two uh, positive estimates. Two, we, we, we try to only think of the best situation. So it's a good idea to think about best case, worst case, and most uh, probable case, for example, when we do estimates. We adjust granularity, meaning the level of detail as we plan. We should also, from the outset, start to think about how to achieve the various qualities that we need to get into the software. We're going to, next week or the week after that, actually talk about software quality. It's a very difficult concept. We're going to talk about that then. But we need to start to plan for how to achieve the various quality levels from various dimensions that we need to uh, achieve in the project. We need to define how to accommodate changes to the plan, and we need to track the plan. So the, and this is, again, principles that we need to do, activities that we need, practices that we need to do, regardless of the actual software process that we have in use. A guy called Barry Bean has made a very good set of questions that he said, well, when I go as a consultant to a software project, the project is often in trouble. Uh, and I know they are in big trouble. If I meet the project manager and I ask him these five questions, if he starts stuttering on any one of them, I know that he doesn't know the project well enough to be a good project manager. So 
They are very simple questions. You can just say, well, why is the system developed? What will be done? When will it be done? Who is responsible for doing it? Where are the people okay, uh, organizationally that are uh, doing the job? How will the job be done? And how much of these resources needed? The answer should come like this, bam, 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 bam. And the project manager has the project under control. So when planning, we should be able to come up with answers to these questions. Okay. When we have planned the project, the next step would be to plan, device uh, a technical plan for how to implement the software. That is when we do modeling. We are going to talk about these models and their technical incarnations testing. But typically we do two levels of models. We do analysis models that represent the customer requirements and the customer's perspective. In the analysis models, also we, we, we use, for example, UML, we do analysis level object diagrams. That is where we depict uh, the software and the problem it's trying to solve by using the vocabulary of the client, the customer, the real world, the domain, if you wish. And the typical views to the software system that we uh, model when we do analysis modeling is the information domain. The information domain would be what data does the data system need to work with. It leads then to database design, configurations, and so on. But the information domain is what is the information, the data, that we need to work with. Then we talk about the functional domain. That is, what are the functions, the functions or features that the software system needs to have from the client's point of view. Uh, and then finally, we have the behavioral domain, which typically is to how does the software system react to various uh, uh, events that can happen. So in the information domain, we would do data modeling. In the functional domain, we would do typically you know, things like use cases and so on, streamline diagrams. And in the behavioral domain, we would do state charts and other ways of describing the states and state transitions of the software system. But the analysis models, they focus on how the so what the software system should do, what the data is, and how it, should, how it should do it from the customer's point of view, from the client's point of view, using uh, the domain language of our, uh, our problem domain. So there you wouldn't see uh, things like iterators or whatever constructor, constructors and so on. Those are things that you, or, or whatever memory management things, those are totally left out of the analysis stage because they are designed, they are software implementation related issues. These are things that we think about when we do design modeling. Then we start thinking about the actual data structures and how to manage memory and how to implement the software. That is when we do the design models. So then we talk about the architecture, the user interface and the component levels and add things that we need to actually be able to implement the software system. So this is a good dis uh, distinction. Typically, we, we should be able to discuss the analysis models with our customers. They should, at some level, be able to understand them, whereas the design models typically contain a level of detail uh, that is not necessary for non-software experts to understand.
So, what we need to do, again, there are lots of various languages and modeling tools we can use to do this analysis modeling. But the things we need to do uh, is to represent the information domain, the data, the functions, the software behavior, and then typically we need to partition the representations. Now, this means that this is just due to the fact that in any typical software system, the models tend to become very big. So that is why we typically do dot models at several levels of abstractions to make it easier to understand. So we partition the representation either by having several layers of abstraction, each one going further down, or by subsystems or functionalities. So we somehow partition the representations uh, to make them more manageable and better to easier to understand. We typically also, when we do our modeling, we start from the essence, from the basic, <coughs> most important concepts from the client customer's point of view, and work our way towards implementation. So here we can see the logic in first understanding the problem, that is analyzing the customer domain, and then moving, deepening that understanding by moving towards a design model, which includes the actual implementation related issues. Huh. Here we have some nice principles. Then when we go into design modeling, to designing the actual software, then we have some principles that the first one, for example, says that design must be traceable to the analysis model. There should be some clear link between the analysis model and the actual design that we have made. Uh, if we use UML, typically the design model is a refinement with additions, uh, but it basically can be built directly upon, uh, in many cases, directly upon the analysis model. We should always remember architecture. This is a weakness in the agile, in agile software development that don't contain any specific stages or activities for the <laughs> software architecture. According to some fairly good empirical research, doing software architecture is critical, and the agile models has in no, have in no way been able to uh, remove that need. So we should do architecture, then we do the design of the data, that is, what, what, what are, uh, are the data structures we use, what is the database designs, and so on. Then we do focus on the interfaces, the user interfaces. Uh, when we do design, we're, we're going to talk about it later, but the idea is we should aim for something called high, co high cohesion and low coupling, meaning that the, each component or class, whatever you want to call it, uh, depending on, on the paradigm you use, should be as internally independent as possible from the other models, and the, so the, uh, and the components should be loosely coupled. So within uh, a single class or a module, you should have high cohesion, meaning things that belong together should be in one place, and they should have as little couplings uh, uh, to other modules as possible. You should use representations that are easy to understood. That is why most design Methodologies use graphical uh, way. We draw boxes, boxes and arrows and and whatever, because it makes them easier to understand. Uh, it's also possible to do design and even specification using purely mathematical notation. Uh, we're going to talk about that during one of the last lectures later in the spring. I'm going to show you. Anyone use Z, the Z modeling language? That's a mathematical language for doing the requirements and specifications. 
And it's interesting in the sense that then it's a more or less produced the code based upon those specifications. The only slight complication is that doing the specification and requirements using them is so difficult that most people don't manage to, to do that. And it's totally useless for showing the clients. But we're going to look at that because it has been used in some specific projects. But that wouldn't fulfill the requirement, the principle that design representation should be easy to understand. Uh, you need to be a trained software engineer to understand that. Um, the design model as well as the analysis models typically are developed iteratively. You go deeper uh, in iterations. Okay. Uh, any thoughts, comments on the on on the modeling practices before we go into coding practice? Making am I making sense? Okay, nobody's jumping, screaming, and shouting, so I guess so. Good. Okay. Now we have coding principles. Again, first before you start coding, whatever, understand the problem, understand basic design principles and concepts. Uh, here we have pick a programming language. Again, a programming language and environment that meets the needs of uh, software you're trying to develop as the environment. Now, in many organizations, it's not possible to just pick a programming language. Why? Yeah. Well, somebody has to code it, so if you have no developers... Exactly. So in many cases, this is what you should do from a theoretical perspective. Always choose the best tools, the best language, and so on. But what if you have a company with 2,000 Google programmers? What is the best language for whatever? They're right, Cobol. Let's code in Cobol. So that is what we end up in in most organizations. We use the languages, the tools we have and know. If we have small organizations and we have people with very high level of training that are very versatile, then we can actually implement this. In many organizations, this is not possible. But this is, of course, theoretically the best way to do it. We should always try to find, match the environment, the tools we use, the frameworks, and the languages to the problem we have so we can implement it uh, optimally. So we should also select a programming environment that provides tools that make our work easier. In many cases, it's either you use Microsoft whatever tool or you use uh, Eclipse. That's typically what we end up with today. But there are, of course, other environments as well, depending on what you work with. Okay? And it's a very good idea to use something called test first, or at least to start from the beginning when you do coding, to develop automated unit tests. So you can automate, automatically test unit te uh, level test your code. Why do you think this is a good idea? Yeah. It verifies the quality of the software. It verifies the quality of the software at the lower level, but what, do you think that, why do you think there's value in that? Uh, From a software engineer? It's easier to do it when you do the code, so it's a good idea to do it then. And then it becomes an asset. So whenever you do new new versions of the product, you fix bugs, you add stuff, you get a set of, of tests that you can rerun, so you can do something that's called regression testing. 
just to run the same tests whenever you change things to make sure that something, anything hasn't been broken. So it becomes an asset to the organization. You have an automated set of tests that you can run. So there is much value in that. Yes? So how do you keep it simple? Yes. There are lots of limitations to the test test approach also, but we're not going, going there today, but we'll do that later. But the basic idea is very sound. And actually the test shows your understanding of the requirements. Because uh, you need to understand how a test is passed or failed, and that definition actually shows your understanding of the requirements. Okay, then we have some coding principles. Uh, select data structures that meet the needs of your design. Typically, we don't need to code our own data structures. Most modern environments have lots of predefined data structures that we can use, but we need to know how to which ones to select. It's very important that everyone understands the architecture and how to write compliant interfaces with the architecture. That is why, as you will hear on the lecture during the second part of the course on software architecture, software architects spend most of their time communicating, training people, explaining the architecture to people, and very little of their time actually designing the architecture. Most of their time is spent making sure that people understand the architecture that they're working with. So that's crucial. Uh, if you love writing cryptical nested if statements, whatever, uh, try to avoid it. Keep conditional logic as simple as possible because uh, conditional logic is one good way of making software difficult to read and understand. And another good place of making software unreadable is nested loops. Or, and also you can do quite nice things with the recursion as well. <laughs> to make your code difficult to understand. So be very, very, try to write as simple code as possible to make it as easy to remember as possible. So understand something as possible. Select meaningful variable names, follow local coding conventions. So if you haven't done that in your organization, you should develop or follow a coding convention that specifies how you should put your braces in on, on, on the or brackets well, in your code, you can have, you should have the fights before starting to code. Uh, and then you should, how to do commenting, uh, and how to name the variables, and so on. So you can use existing conventions, there are any of those, or you can write your own ones. But it's very important that all coders develop code that looks similar. So you shouldn't be able to say that this is, uh, this is VLS code, and this is Casper's code, and VLS code looks just awful. But Casper's code is great. If you can say that just by looking at the code, then something is wrong. You should use the conventions to make sure that the code developed in your team and your organization is similar, regardless of who has developed it. So it's very important. You should write self-documenting code. Again, the coding conventions help you to do that. And create a visual layout that aids understanding. Then what we have coded, we need to validate the code. It's a very good idea to use code walkthroughs, or you can even use pair programming, but to have somebody actually read through the code. We're going to talk about that when we talk about testing, but it's a very, very good way of finding bugs to explain your code to somebody else, or have some other 
guy who is technically as competent as you read through the code. Because they will find things, typically. Perform the unit test, correct the errors. If needed, refactor the code. Anyone remember what refactoring is? Yep. Uh, keeping the Okay, so we change the code to make make it better. There are, we are going to talk more about what better means from a code perspective, but to make the code internally better without changing the functionality or, as it's often is said, the observable behavior of the program. To improve the code without changing the actual behavior of the program. You should do that if you see that something is done poorly. It's a good idea to refactor it when you notice it. Okay. Then we have Test principles, we should be, be able to trace all tests to the requirements so we know that we, that we can also go the other way and see do we test for all the requirements. Uh, there's a big debate on whether uh, planning the test, how necessary and how good that is. Juha Ipkonen, one of my PhD students, uh, has made a study in which he, he con contrasted exploratory testing in which uh, you test a piece of software without having predefined test cases, saying what you should test. And com contrasted that with testing in which you had predefined use cases. And the, uh, he found that uh, there was actually no significant difference in how effective these approaches were. There are other problems with so-called exploratory testing, but there's a big debate whether or not at what level and how the test should be planned, and what are the additional benefits of that. We will have that discussion uh, later, but it's a very fun one. The Pareto principle applies to testing. Anyone know what the Pareto principle is? Anyone heard of the 80-20 rule? So we test basically that 20% of the code will have 80% of the problems. And you should test uh, uh, and also in testing, 20% uh, of the tests will find 80% of the bugs. So typically it means that there will be some parts of the code, small part of the code, that will have more bugs than the other part. We typically begin testing in the small, testing at the unit level. Then we work through subsystem module levels up to system levels. And the most important thing to understand is that there's no way we can show that the system is of high quality or bug-free by testing. It's totally impossible to do exhaustive testing to test everything in the software system. So the only thing we can show uh, by testing software is that uh, if our tests pass, we didn't write any test, the tests that found bugs. We can only use tests to show that there are bugs. We cannot write enough tests to be able to show that there aren't any bugs left. Any comments on the construction practices? Anything you think is missing or you'd like to add? Yeah. Uh, refactoring uh, and debugging, yes. Refactoring uh, is not the same thing as debugging. Debugging is removing something that causes a fault in operation. Uh, whereas refactoring is something you can do even though the system works totally fine. You are improving the code to make it, for example, more maintainable. But you don't need to have a bug to do refactoring. So yes, there's a difference. Uh, 
Okay, any other comments or questions? I think I saw some other hands. Okay. Let's look at deployment practices. Now, deployment can be very simple. Deployment can be putting your software up on your website to have customers download and install it. Or it can be extremely difficult. It can be a project that is as big as the development project, in which you have a large customer with critical systems, databases that needs to be updated. You need to to, to uh, install it on their servers, uh, and so on. It can be a very, very difficult process. But what is important is to manage the customer expectations and manage the deployment well. We should have a complete delivery package containing, it can be either patches or whole executables, related documentation and so on, that we should assemble and test. We should have some way of supporting uh, our customers. We can have several levels of support. We must have instructional materials. And it's a good idea to fix the bugs first and deliver later. In most cases, this is not practical, though. Most software systems that are shipped, if not all, contain known bugs when they are shipped. That's a fact of life. Why? Yeah. <coughs> it's probably... Uh, a cost-benefit thing. It's a cost-benefit thing. We can, we don't, if we fix all the bugs, we might never ship. And we'll, we'll have no money. And then we definitely can't fix no bugs. So uh, it's a matter of finding the right level of quality for shipping. There, have been, there are mathematical models for doing that, and there are less formal approaches for doing that. But the idea is that we should have good enough quality for shipping. Aiming for perfect software quality is something that we are we don't have the luxury of doing in but a very few set of software projects. If we develop very, very critical software, then we of course need to aim as close to bug freeness as possible. And we, we might even do formal verification and testing uh, on small subsets of the system. But in most cases, uh, we need to ship while having existing bugs in the system. And then, of course, what is important is to typically classify the bugs so that we try not to ship showstoppers that will make the customers come and hunt us down in the middle of the night. But minor bugs typically, uh, we have several of them when we ship the software. Okay. Software development is a lot about communication. Uh, these are just general rules. We're going to talk more about communication and meetings later. But uh, it's a good idea to be prepared for all your communication, for all meetings. Never go unprepared into a meeting. In particular, if you're talking to customers, and in particular if they are upset, uh, it's a good idea to shut up and listen. And don't, you don't defend oneself. It's a good idea to listen first. Then uh, facilitate the meeting. If you can meet face-to-face, -face, that's always the best thing of dealing with or almost anything in software development. It's the best or most efficient way of doing design. It's the, most, it's the best way of training people. It's the best way of finding out what the customer wants is to meet face-to-face. -face. In many cases, you can't do that. You will then use other communication media. You typically find today that projects use 
I would like you to use phones, email, chat. It's very often used in software development today, uh, in addition to face-to-face. -to -face. But for difficult situations in particular, face-to-face -face is best. It's very important to take notes and to document all decisions. Who decided that we are going to do that? When was it decided? Why? We should aim at collaboration, stay focused on the issues. You draw pictures uh, as much as possible to make uh, communication easier. And if a meeting gets stuck uh, on some minor point, it's a good idea to force it to go on. So these are just some very general rules and then the negotiation, basic thing we hear about negotiation all the time aim for win-win. But uh, I think we're going to talk a lot more about communication, in particular when we talk about global software development in which <coughs> communication uh, really comes up to the top as one of the main concerns that we need to deal with. And I think, actually, that's all I have for you today, because I have a meeting so that I have to go to, so we need to have a shorter link to today. Tomorrow, uh, we're going to have Philip uh, talking about the uh, exercises. Next week, on Wednesday, we're going to talk about requirements management and, uh, and design. And then we're going to talk about construction and testing on Thursday. So next week we are going to jump into the actual activities of software engineering in more detail. Do you have any questions or comments? Yes. communication, I remember reading somewhere that communication is the thing of this thing like software projects fail well. Yes. Communication is actually the biggest problem in most software projects. We could have, if we look at the basic ideas of software design, this is very relevant to communication. The basic idea of software design is we do a modularization with clear interfaces between the modules. And then the, the idea there is that anyone working then on a, on a module doesn't need to communicate with people working on other modules. So we try to compartmentalize communication into the various subsystems. If we, if we live in, if we had to live in, in a perfect world, what would happen is that people wouldn't need to communicate because we would have a perfect architecture with perfect interfaces and people wouldn't make any mistakes. So they would just implement the thing that we could put, put it all together and it would just work. So that is actually what we aim at in much of software design to help lessen the need for communication. If we have a monolithic structure, then everybody needs to communicate with everybody about everything from just due to technical reasons. So you're right about the communication problem, but that is also why we need the design, the architecture, to help minimize the need for communication. But unfortunately, people make mistakes. This is the last thing. So uh, we don't have perfect interfaces. People run into problems. They need to discuss, and that is why we uh, still have a problem with communication. Communication is one of the main issues that we find in, in, in software projects, that in particular, software projects that don't go well typically have lots of problems in communication. And if we go to global uh, projects, we typically find that communication is the main thing that we need to work on to, to make projects uh, go well. We're going to talk about that when we talk about global software development. But a very good point. Any other comments or questions? If not, then uh, you will have lots of time, so please eat a three-course lunch have some nice wine.
and really enjoy yourselves now when you have time to see you all tomorrow.